welcome back to Jorge and John Talk About Soccer. I am John Block, and I'm joined, as always, by Jorge Deneve. Good to be back. Like our title suggests, we are here to talk about some soccer, some World Cup soccer specifically. We've got the very end of round one of the group stage and roughly the first half of round two to go over for you, and then we're going to preview sort of the second half of round two and talk about some, some fun tidbits that have come up so far this World Cup. Let's hop right into it with a nice 2-1 win for Japan over Colombia, which saw the first sending off of the tournament, Carlos Sanchez, a third-minute red card. Jorge, you may or may not remember this, but I was really hyping up Carlos Sanchez as a Colombia player. You were. In our preview podcast, but I did mention that for his club, Aston Villa, no longer his club, but when I, when I would watch him, because I was an Aston Villa fan, he was terrible. And I think he really uh, really held up to that part of his playing career as he handled in the box in the third minute and got sent off. I, I don't know if it's fair to call him terrible, because he only played three minutes. He hardly did anything. That being said, I don't know why you're even considering um, handling the ball in the box in the third minute when you're most definitely the stronger team. Because that's at Columbia back. And, and Japan was on the front foot the whole way when if they were even strength, they probably wouldn't have been. Columbia probably would have won. So that cost them the game right there. Otherwise, it's, it was an 11-man team against the 10-man team, and it kind of proceeded like you'd expect. Yeah, I mean, I would say... Japan were definitely the better team, but not by as much as I might expect, you know, uh, an all-things-considered 11-man team against a 10-man team. You know, I would say great for Japan to get, a three point, to get the three points, and I think they definitely have a chance to advance now. But even though they won, it wasn't all that convincing since Colombia was still in the game to some extent, despite being a man down for almost literally the entire game. Yeah, I mean... It makes you wonder if James Rodriguez is fit for the whole game, what the result would have been. Because he only came on for the last 30 minutes because I guess his, his calf had been bothering him or whatever it is. So they really need him to be 100% for the last two games because now they need to win them both. Yeah, I mean, just Group H is, I think, a lot different than what people expected after one round of games. We'll get to the Senegal-Poland game next. But another thing... All three of the goals in this game, we had Shinji Kagawa's penalty after Carlos Sanchez's red card, then we had a Quintero free kick for Colombia, and then another goal for Japan, which was the eventual winner off of a free kick that was headed in. I feel like this World Cup has seen a ton of set-piece goals. It, it has, and I think a lot of that is just down to really, really bad set-piece defending, which I don't get, because you feel like if you're a national team, you don't have that much time to practice tactics. But the one thing you will do is you will practice defending set pieces because that is an easy way for teams that are not as strong to get a goal. Yet teams don't seem to do it. I don't completely get it. I, I feel like the thing is it could be – it seems like refs have been a lot more strict with cutting down, you know, grabbing and pulling in the box. Not necessarily when it actually happens in play. But I've seen a lot more times when they'll, they'll blow the whistle before the free kick is actually taken and give the defenders and attackers a talking to. I feel like that wouldn't affect it because it seems like there's still as much you know grabbing and stuff in the box as, as there is normally. But I have noticed that one change, and maybe that's correlated in some way. I mean, it's, it's probably a factor. But I think at some point, even like training between the first two games, like, okay, 
they're not going to let us hold enough. Now we have to work on defending set pieces beyond that. It's it's inexcusable at this level, the amount of set piece goals given up. Yeah, definitely not a great look for all the all the defenses. Nope. But moving on to the other Group H game, uh, Senegal got a 2-1 win over Poland, which I would say for a lot of people was an upset, but based on my opinion of Senegal, and I think yours as well, it wasn't super surprising to see them win, as you know, Senegal kind of seemed to us like an underrated team, whereas Poland was definitely overrated. Yeah, and this was the problem with the way FIFA seeded the pots, is that Poland gamed the FIFA rankings to get into pot one. So I've been low on Poland, and I've been very high on Senegal. I think they showed what we expected from them. The pace on the counter, greater physicality, and being a little more organized than I expected as well. But, I mean, they, they're good. They were probably one of the teams that impressed me the most with how cohesive they actually looked beyond whatever else you want to say about the referees. I think they deserved it. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a lot of refereeing controversy with this game. Probably the biggest would be with Mbain Yang's goal, the second goal, and the, the winner for Senegal, where he went off the field injured, not really injured, but because he received treatment on the field, he had to go off, and the referee waved him on at a time when, you know, this should be mentioned also, the back pass that Nyang ended up intercepting after he came back on and then, you know, scored was a really terrible back pass regardless. And so you could say, yeah, he shouldn't have been waved back on at that time because it, it, gave, him an, it, it gave him an advantage, and it did give him an give him an advantage but at the same time there was shoddy defending by Poland also yeah I don't know why Krakowiak isn't taking that ball down because it's not like there was anybody around him he had time to control and he's a good enough player to control that one I mean he's he played with West Brom this year but he's been with PSG before he's he's good also Chesney what what's he doing why why hasn't why is he coming for that when it's a good 10 yards out of his box. He's probably got a better chance if he stays in the box where he can use his hands. Yeah, it really didn't make a whole lot of sense on Poland's end. Although I think the referee criticism is fair nonetheless. But, I mean, Sentinel definitely were the better team in that game. I think they deserved the three points, no question. Yeah, for sure. I think they have Colombia or Sentinel. No, they have Japan next. We'll get to that one later. But, I mean, they're they're good. They're, they should move on. I had them in the quarters initially, and I'm, I'm liking what I'm seeing from them. Yeah, I mean, I think they are looking so far the best team in their group. But let's head to the second round of group stage games. Russia, again, as the host country, kicking it off. And we talked on the last episode about if Russia you know, won convincingly over Egypt, then they, they might actually be for real as a team that you know, cannot just advance with, which after their 3-1 win over Egypt, they're guaranteed to do but could at least give you know, Portugal or Spain in the round of 16 some trouble. Uh, was this a convincing enough win for you, Jorge? It wasn't. Egypt are worse than I thought they were to start. And beyond that, I think Russia was a little fortunate with the refereeing decisions. For one, I think there was a push on the opening goal from Juba into the back of the defender who scored the own goal. I think Egypt could have maybe had another penalty. Um, and the third goal, literally, they just hit a long free kick to a 6-5 player, and he just had a good touch and good finish. But I I still don't think it was all that cohesive. They were better, but still not good enough for me. Yeah, um, I, I would tend to agree with that, especially on the Egypt front, 
I figured, you know, I think maybe because Mo Salah and the form he was in, that, you know, a full-strength Egypt would be able to cause teams more trouble and would be a bigger threat in the tournament. But they really, even with Mo Salah, it seemed like Russia just sort of marked him out of the game as much as they could, which wasn't entirely, but, but was enough to get the win. And there, the other Egyptian attacking options just really couldn't do a whole lot. So I, I agree that, I think especially because of who Russia will end up having to face in the round of 16, whether that be Portugal or Spain, is just such a, a talented team. Although I guess there are some questions with Portugal that we can get to, or at least that I have. But I just don't really see them doing enough. I think you know their strategy against whatever team will just be to sit back and, and try not to concede against either of those teams, rather than actually be able to, to come out and play against them. Like the sitting back and defending and preventing a goal, that's what they did against Saudi Arabia. And if that's what you're doing against the Saudis, then you're not a threat to me. Yeah, I definitely agree. But I would say let's move on to Portugal's win over Morocco. I just mentioned Portugal. They got a 1-0 win. Morocco, for the second game in a row, looked pretty decent but ended up losing. And because of that, they're now eliminated from the tournament which I think is a shame. I mean, I would say they definitely looked better in this game against Portugal than they, they did against Iran, for sure. But they were the better team against Iran, and they were, at the very least, a competitive team in this game. So, d- disappointed, or what's your feelings on Morocco with them being eliminated this early? Uh, it, it's disappointing that a team that you know went for it was the first one eliminated. But... I mean, there's only so much you can do when you can't score a goal and you can't defend set pieces. I mean, I don't know why you're even trying to mark Cristiano Ronaldo one-on-one for a corner because he's just going to torch that defender and win the header. And that's what he did. And that's all Portugal needed to do. And then beyond that, I mean, maybe you have penalty shouts during the game, but if you're the coach coming up in the postgame saying... Oh yeah, Pepe pushed our guy on the first corner when really Pepe is the one making the front post run and he's getting pushed in the back also. That's not why you lost. So that it kind of took away any sympathy I had for them. But I mean, they, they tried to play. They were more exciting than some of the other teams that are moving on. Yeah, definitely a team I'd like to see more of uh, other than you know their, their final game against Spain. But I guess that's the way the World Cup works, especially in such a tough group with Portugal and Spain. It was always going to be tough for them to make it out. I guess just disappointing that it happened so early. On the Portugal side, I was not super impressed by how they played. I think they got the goal, and it seemed like their strategy after that goal to be a little more passive and, and just defend. And they did defend, obviously, well enough to get the win. But it seemed like Morocco, for you know, even though they were exciting and credit to Morocco, I figure Portugal should be able to shut them down better than they did, and it's maybe a little worrying that they they didn't do that. Yeah, I'm. It hurts that this is Portugal's strategy because we're used to Portugal going out trying to to go score, be proactive, attacking. But this is what they've done for the last few years. They recognize that. Their midfield is not a very good creative attacking force anymore. So they're just going to sit back and rely on maybe the best finisher in the world to carry them through. But yeah, they definitely should have locked Morocco down a little bit more, especially since they don't really have a goal threat. And there were, there were a lot of close opportunities for Morocco to equalize. So that's, that's a little worrying for Portugal and something they're going to need to work on. 
Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, they're you know very likely to advance. They just have to not lose to Iran in the third round of group stage games. But, you know, and then beyond that, you know, they'll have maybe Uruguay, maybe Russia. But I would say against either of those teams, it, it might be tough for them. I would say probably a, a good chance against Russia, but against Uruguay, I feel like that would be such a boring game against either teams because it seems like both teams will just sit back and there really will be no attacking intent from either side. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and then kind of to segue into the next game, that's what we saw from Uruguay. Again, against Saudi Arabia, they played to their strengths, got a gift from the goalkeeper, won 1-0 again, scoring off a corner. Um, I wonder if we're going to see Uruguay score not from a set piece at any point. I mean... If they want, you know, want to keep advancing, I think they'll probably have to, although with how many set-piece goals there have been in this tournament, who knows. But I, I think really their strategy is just you know, play it safe, hope we get a goal. If we need a goal at the end, push forward at the last possible moment, otherwise defend. Um, I think you saw with Portugal and Uruguay, they both got goals relatively early in the game and then were pretty content with you know, leaving it at that and not pushing it further, which, you know works well enough when you're against lesser opposition. Obviously, Saudi Arabia is much worse than Uruguay. But when Uruguay eventually does go up against a better team and they'll have to go up against Portugal or Spain in the round of 16, as we keep saying, they're going to have to do more. And I'm not sure that they have the capability to do that given their, I would say, lackluster midfield. Yeah, their midfield is going to hurt them at the end of the day. And I, I can't really fault them for their strategy because they have Godin and Jimenez at center back, which we've said a couple times already. They're good. They're probably the best center back pairing in this tournament for a reason. And I mean, Uruguay's going to play to their strengths, and their midfield is not a strength. They're not going to win, and that, that's why. Yeah, I'd certainly be shocked if they got past the quarters, but we'll see. I mean, with two you know, world-class center backs with two world-class strikers. It is possible even with that midfield. So well, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. But moving on, Spain grabbed a 1-0 win over Iran to stay level with Portugal at the top of Group B. It wasn't easy for Spain to score, but they managed to do it. It's probably the ugliest goal of the tournament so far because the Iranian defender kicked it off Costa's knee and it kind of just rolled into the net. But I don't necessarily think it was Spain's fault that this game was boring. Iran was always going to bunker down and try and defend. And Spain Spain was forced a little bit back into the way they played in 2010. They had to be patient. They had to look for openings. They created a few shots, a lot of, a lot of blocks from Iran, a lot of last-ditch tackles, a lot of corners, some decent goalkeeping. But Isco was fun. I think the most exciting thing I I saw in that game was his scoop turn pass to Iniesta, and I, I got out of my chair and screamed because it was so good. Yeah, Iniesta or sorry, Isco did look really good, and you know Spain counter you know different from Portugal and Uruguay did have a lot of attacking intent. It was just Iran. It seemed like you know, from kickoff had ten men behind the ball, and it was just it's tough to break down any team that plays that defensively, especially when you know, you're Spain and you're trying to, you know, weasel your way in through, through the space. There really wasn't a whole lot of space for them to do that with. 
but they, they ended up getting the win. Cost goal. It was ugly. His his turn into the defender who kicked it into his his leg and then into the goal was pretty nice. Is is a nice turn, and I think having Diego Costa in form, which given the two games they've played, it seems like he is, is definitely going to help that Spanish team. And I think offers them something where, you know, if it's not working, having all these little passes to, to break a team down, giving it to someone like Costa and just sort of feeding him and letting him bully his way in seems like a really good, you know, option B for the team. Yeah, it is. I, that's that is what Spain needed for a game like this. And, and they're lucky that they have it. I will say the head is still a concern for me because the the Iranian goal that was ruled out was right at him. I think he got something on it and it just still went through him. And it, it, she shook it off and came out for a cross and punched it at the end of the match. But he hasn't – I still think he doesn't look like himself. And I think he's he's very vulnerable for whatever reason in this tournament. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Obviously, the huge mistake against Portugal, nothing quite as bad because the, the goal was ru- ruled offside in the Iran game, but at some point, you know, that, that might end up costing them more than it has so far. Uh, but you had another VAR gripe in this game, Jorge? Yeah. Um, so there's a, a little confrontation. It's pretty much the only exciting moment of the first half when Diego Costa walks up to the Iranian goalkeeper who's already time-wasting and get a little close, and all of a sudden, as Costa's walking away, you see the keeper jump and roll the ball out of bounds for some injury treatment. And, and with a guy of Costa's reputation, you'd think, okay, maybe he stepped on him, and since one of the functions of VAR is to determine whether violent conduct existed or not, I think it's something that should have been looked at. Um, and then once you look at it, uh, once you look at the, the replay, then you can change anything in that call. So I think it's very clear that Costa doesn't step on the keeper. And I think he should have gotten a yellow for simulation. But they seem just to, and the rep just waved it off. They didn't do anything, which I don't completely understand. And I think it's very unclear. If you're not going to look at VAR for that, what is it actually being used for? Yeah, it seems like they're definitely hesitant to use VAR for anything that might get someone sent off, like a, like a confrontation like that, especially if there was an incident we'll get to in the Croatia-Argentina game where they didn't take a look at it. And it seems like they're kind of hesitant to look at it to take away a goal. You know, with, with the Iran goal, it was initially ruled off sides, and then they just confirmed that. And it seems like generally when it's something that big, it seems like they're saying, okay, we'll use it for penalties and then really anything more controversial than uh, something that's a pretty clear penalty for the most part, we're, we're not going to get into it, which I can understand this being the first time they're using VAR and wanting to keep the you know, controversial nature of it as, as low as possible, although obviously it's still going to be there. But at the same time, I'd like to see it used to judge those kind of situations more, which I think MLS has, has done that really well and has given a lot of, of red cards and things like that when, you know, looking back at a situation. Yeah. So do you doubt that um, they would have called the goal back had the assistant not initially called offside? That's a good question. Because, it, so it was offsides. It was pretty clearly offsides. So I guess they, they would have looked at it. And it, I guess that does seem like something that, that they're going to do because, you know, they've said a lot that, assistants have been told to keep their flags down if they're not sure so VAR can look at it. So I guess maybe in that case where it's, it's an offside and pretty clear, they, they might have looked at it. 
But generally, I mean, we've seen some goals where, you know, there have been pushes pushes and things like that leading to, you know, a, a headed goal or something like that. But I think something like that wouldn't be looked at. Maybe an offsides would be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Moving on, Denmark-Australia, 1-1. Both teams scored for what seemed like the first time forever because we got stuck with a day of 3-1 games. Um, what were your thoughts on that? I think, first of all, Denmark's goal was one of the nicest of the tournament as far as you know, passing and, and teamwork, setting it up. Um, a, a number of nice passes leading up to it, and then Nikolai Jorgensen, uh, a nice sort of flick back into the box for Christian Eriksen, who had a really nice finish on the half volley. Australia, meanwhile, another penalty for handball, which you know they got against France when Samuel Mtidi handled it. This time it was Yusuf Poulsen, who I hyped him up in the last episode for playing really well against Peru. I don't take that back, but at the same time, he's given up two penalties in two games now and also has gotten two yellow cards, meaning he'll miss Denmark's game against France. So that certainly tampers my, my praise of him a little bit. Yeah, I, I will say I think the yellow on the penalty was harsh. Agreed. But I mean, it was a penalty. His arm, is w- his arm is way out. It should have been given. And then Mila Jednak stuck it away. He scored Australia's last three World Cup goals from the penalty spot. So there is a little tidbit of information for you. Is this a, a poor result for Australia? Because now they need to win and have Denmark lose to move on yeah i mean that game that denmark or that australia peru game is going to be really important as are the france as is the france denmark game so i think not getting a win is tough for australia because they certainly leave it out of their hands in in a lot of ways they know they have to win they know but even then they might not advance i think it's tough again denmark is a pretty good team and australia has has looked pretty good this tournament but I would say, having seen you know all the teams play twice now, I might pick them. I might say that they're the worst team in the tournament, even though they are not last in the group. So I think it's tough. I, I definitely think this is the toughest group um, in the in the World Cup. But yeah, it's it's a bummer for Australia that they're in such a hole. I think you know in, in another group they might definitely advance. Shout out Mila Yednak, by the way, great penalty taker. Love him, my Aston Villa guy. I think he's the first Aston Villa player to score in a World Cup since, I can't remember his name, but some Irish player in like 1994. So it's been a while. Uh, There's a wonderful Aston Villa subreddit post, which when he scored the first penalty, it was like, when's the last time an Aston Villa player has, you know, scored in the World Cup? Yay, Mille. And then someone wrote the exact same post, but was like, oh, wait, at the end of it, because he just scored. Um, So shout out Mille. Love him. Bummer for Australia with this draw. They're probably not going to advance, but we'll see. Good for Villa, though. Um, the other Group C game, France 1-0 against Peru. Um, do you think France looked any better? I do think they looked better. I thought they looked a little flat against Australia. And, and you said that that game might serve as a bit of a wake-up call, and, and it seemed that way to me. They made a couple of changes. They started Giroud, and they started Matuidi as well. And I think those were probably both good changes to make. I think Giroud really does make the France team better for whatever criticisms you could give of his play at club level, which I really think even some of those are probably not as deserved as they could be. But Giroud has has 
done really well for France. And I think Matuidi is a really solid veteran presence in that midfield as well. So I think those were both good substitutions, and they definitely paid off, and, and France did look better. Yeah, I, I, it was definitely a nerve settler. And I think, especially for a player like Kylian Mbappe, who I think was pretty anonymous against Australia, and then against Peru is just saucing his defender on the wing, and he, he managed to get the goal. So I think he's... I think he's calmer, and I think France, as a result, is calmer. Just kind of saying, all right, this young star is doing well. We can breathe a little bit more. And they gave up fewer scoring chances than they did against Australia. So I, th- I think a more dangerous team going forward in Peru. That being said, Peru still looked decent. I mean, they, they got some chances against France. Credit to them. They weren't super passive. They weren't super defensive. They went out and, and tried to play the game. And I think it's a bummer that they're you know, already eliminated, having two losses now, because I've really enjoyed watching them play. Yeah, I, I think so much, was, so much energy was spent on qualifying for this tournament that I think emotionally they weren't necessarily as invested in moving forward and a little bit also is just not having the World Cup experience. But... I think they showed a lot of people that they can actually play, and I think Comebol is going to be a bit more sharp when they play against Peru in, in qualifying because now they can see, oh, these guys are good. They're not just the pushovers of the region anymore. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're showing this World Cup. Has it been in ways disappointing, but in other ways definitely pretty solid. I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if they made you know the 2022 World Cup. I think they can definitely give other Comebol teams a run for their money, especially the way... You know, a lot of those teams have performed so far this World Cup. Yeah, Comebol has been bad. I, I know it's like way down here in the outline, but basically if you take away Uruguay, Comebol has taken two points out of a possible 18, and they only scored three goals while they've allowed nine. So I, I think that kind of shows you how this normally dominant region is just not good in this World Cup. Yeah, uh, speaking of Argentina-Croatia, last game we've got to recap, a three nil win for Croatia. I just have written down yikes for Argentina. It was just not a good performance again for the second straight game. Obviously a lot worse result wise. Who's to blame for this, Jorge? I think we both agree that it's not Messi. Yeah, I've been scrolling through Twitter. I think people are are ragging on Messi a little unfairly. I I'd put this on Sampaoli. Um Game one, he, for whatever reason, decides to go five in the back against Iceland. This game, he's flipped the script completely and played three at the back with two outside backs as his center backs. He's left them no defensive cover. And for whatever reason, he's also done it with Mascherano in the midfield. So I'm trying to figure out what is his, uh, like, what, why doesn't he just like a normal 4-3-3 or a 4-4-2, which is going to make these players much more comfortable because they're all used to playing in the back I think it's that I also think like we have to like point a little bit at Willie Caballero I think three of the goals can be put squarely on him like the obvious howler where he tried to chip it over the Croatian forward which was Karius-esque if if my Liverpool fans are to be believed and they are um, and then two of the others were just rebounds that he didn't push far away enough so I think Sergio Romero going down with an ACL injury is a, a bigger thing than most people have realized. 
So I think those are the two main culprits. Yeah. Um, Caballero has certainly not been great, especially with that one he gave away to uh, Rebic for Croatia for their first. And then definitely Sampaoli's decisions have, have been suspect. I mean, we finally saw Paolo Dybala come on in the second half of this Croatia game for you know any meaningful time. And I just feel like it's it's so obvious that you know a lot of these you know veteran players are not doing enough for for Argentina. So why not you know give a younger player who who has done really well with Juventus opportunity? It doesn't really make sense. Yeah, or or even Mauro Icardi at Inter, who was Serie A's leading goal scorer and wasn't even picked for the squad. It's just, it's mind boggling. Definitely, credit to Croatia though. I mean, there are definitely a lot of problems with Argentina. But for they they look pretty good. I want to credit myself here for saying that tactically it made a lot of sense for them to play Brozovic as a holding midfielder, which they ended up doing late in the game uh, in their game against Nigeria. But they started with it this game, and I think it, it really worked for them. I think Modric had a lot more freedom, and you know he was making really nice passes throughout the game. Ended up getting a nice goal as well. So I think. Credit to me for knowing which tactics would work better. Although Brozovic does now have a yellow card suspension for Peru or for Croatia's third game, which not a huge deal since they've already advanced, but just something to note. Yeah, I mean, you were right, and it it let Modric and Rakitic do what they do best. Modric just get the ball and spray it wherever he wants, and Rakitic just to be everywhere without either one of them having to worry about shielding the back four. Really, the only defensive lapse from Croatia was um, the one situation where Lovren tried to shield back to Subasic. Subasic didn't come, and all of a sudden Enzo Perez has an open goal, which he misses, which no one's going to talk about because like, in the grand scheme of things, um, Argentina lost 3-0 after that. But other than that, Croatia was on the front foot. They were the better team. Modric scored a great goal. Rakitic should have scored a free kick that I think literally hit the top corner. Pretty close, yeah. It was a really good free kick. Um, but now beyond that, now the foul leading up to that Rakitic free kick that hit the corner, afterwards Otamendi kind of kicks the ball into Rakitic, and I think a lot of us thought it was a red. So what? again, another VAR situation where they didn't go look at it. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't think that's something they want to look at just because it, it is something that's even more subjective than, than the other decisions they have been using VAR to make. I, I definitely think it is a red. He ended up getting a yellow. I think that means the ref saw him kick the ball at Rakic's head while Rakic is on the ground and decided that it wasn't a red, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But, I mean, I guess Croatia won't have too many complaints about it in the end because they won. Definitely something to to note going forward, though, regarding whether or not they're going to look at those. Yeah, and it's big for Argentina because if Otamendi gets a red, he can't play against Nigeria and um, what could be for their tournament lives. But I guess leading into that, do we think that game actually matters? The Argentina-Nigeria game. Argentina-Nigeria, yeah. I mean, I think it certainly depends on what happens with Iceland-Nigeria because... If, if Iceland win that game, then it makes it a lot harder for Argentina to end up qualifying. I would say the game kind of doesn't matter either way because Argentina have just looked so poor, and I 
more than any other team that hasn't looked great, I don't expect them to be able to turn it around. So I would say even if, if they luck out and end up making it through the group stage, there really isn't any hope for them to make it much further beyond that. So the, the game will probably matter to some extent since Argentina likely won't be eliminated for sure. In fact, they definitely won't by that point. But Argentina looks bad regardless and I think will disappoint anyone who still has high hopes for them. That's fair. And I'll take this moment to say I said that Argentina would be the biggest disappointment. I just didn't think they'd be this bad. Yeah, I mean, even by our lower standards, I think they, we both didn't think they'd be as good as other people. They've been really bad. And again, this game, where they were just you know deferring to Messi late in the game. He had like three Croatia players marking him, literally surrounding him. And you know an Argentina midfielder would, would pass to him. He had to come so deep. He was picking up the ball at midfield or somewhere around there where, you know, Mandzukic was coming back and, and the one defending him, which is not where you want Messi to be. Yeah, I, they need to figure something out quick if, if they can even move on. Um, and we'll see if Messi decides to come back, because after this, I can see him being frustrated and saying, I'm done. I'm not playing anymore. He's already done it once. That's true. I would not be surprised if he did. And, and like we said last episode, I, I think it would be the best for Messi and the best for the Argentina national team as well, just because of the way they misuse him on the team. But that ends our recaps for this episode. We're going to preview a few games, starting with two semifinalists from last World Cup who both had disappointing first games. First, we've got Brazil, who takes on Costa Rica. There was this reporting, at least on you know Fox, for me, where I was watching, where there was this Neymar injury scare where he picked up a knock in training and it was, was he going to play? Was he not going to play? When they first reported this, they sort of slipped into the end. Oh, he's actually fine, says you know the manager, whoever, and then kept playing up the story, which really annoyed me because it was so clear that Neymar wasn't actually hurt in any serious way. And it really seemed like the, a story that they were just playing up to, to play up the story. And I really hated it. If your star ever feels any sort of discomfort in a training, there's no reason to make him play through the pain, whether it's actually serious, whether it's minimal. So it's one of those where it's just like, oh, you're hurting a little bit? That's fine. I don't really think they cared whether he was actually hurting or not or if he was just tired and unfit. But, like, he's fine. We knew he was going to be fine. He's playing. Yeah. There's not really much more to say. I think people should be more asking, is Brazil going to change the way they play? And I guess to answer that question, I think no. I think they're going to do the same thing. They're not worried at all. Are you worried at all for them? They, they drew against Switzerland, obviously had some trouble, although you know a lot of that could be attributed to just the Swiss strategy of, of fouling Neymar at every opportunity and just being really aggressive defensively. Do you think that's something that Costa Rica can do as well successfully, or is Brazil going to you know, cakewalk through this game? I think so long as João Miranda can be a little stronger defending corners and not go down at the lightest touch, Brazil's going to be fine. And I, I think they can cakewalk, and I think they will. Fair enough. Costa Rica definitely didn't look great in their first game, so I wouldn't be surprised if Brazil was able to beat them pretty easily. But the other semifinalist who disappointed, Germany, who play Sweden. Uh, Sweden on three points, Germany on zero, which I think a lot of people would not have guessed going into this. 
game, if Germany are able to win this game comfortably, assuming, are they fine? Are there no worries for Germany if, if this is an easy game for them? I wouldn't necessarily say no worries because I think everyone saw the way Mexico counterattacked them, but I do think they will be fine. I mean, that was their toughest group game. They had their chances. They missed a couple big ones. They, they're still expected to move past, and then at that point it's a knockout tournament, and it really doesn't matter whether they finish first or second. They still have to win. So yeah, they're fine if they win comfortably. And I think they're very calm, and they kind of know we're the world champs. If you're Sweden, what are you hoping for in this game? Do you want to try to do what Mexico did and pull off a win? Are you just happy with a point, knowing that you know Germany can then leapfrog you if you don't win against Mexico? Or what, what's your goal if you're Sweden? I think if you can find a way to counterattack, that's good. I just don't think they have the sort of pace that Mexico has on the counterattack to really exploit the spaces. So I, I think a point for Sweden is a good result. Especially since, I mean, you kind of hope Mexico is going to be through and they maybe take their foot off the gas last game. Really, you, you just can't lose. Because um, if you lose, you're pretty much done. Yeah, that would certainly be tough. You'd have to hope to you know, outdo Germany when you're playing Mexico and Germany's playing South Korea, which would be tough, even if Mexico you know, isn't gutting their hardest, having already guaranteed advancement. Yeah. But for our final previews, we've got... Some Group H games, like we mentioned when we recap them, not the way people might have expected this group to be looking so far, with Japan and Senegal on top and Poland and Colombia both having lost. But the two top teams, Japan and Senegal, will play, and then the two teams that lost, Poland and Colombia, will play in the second round of games. Jorge, what are you expecting from each of these? I expect similar performances from three of the four teams. I think Japan's going to try and execute the same game plan. I think that Senegal... They've won. I think they're, they're a little calmer. I think they're going to try and do the same thing. I think Poland is just kind of hope Lewandowski scores, which is how it seemed to me last time, and maybe take advantage of set pieces. I think Colombia is pissed off. I think at this point, whether James Rodriguez is 100% or not, he's going to have to play from the start. And especially since Ospina has played better than I expected him to, I think that they, they come out with three points and put pressure on whoever doesn't win that Japan-Senegal game. For Japan, I think Japan is the most interesting of these four teams because they were really gifted a three points against Colombia that I think had Carlos Sanchez not been sent off at the beginning of the game, it would have been really hard for them to get. And I think of any of those four teams in Group H going into it, it would have been the hardest for them to advance, but because they've got that three points from the first game, they're now in a, a pretty good position to do that if they can play their cards right. So what do you think their goal should be going into this game against Senegal and then the game against Poland in round three to try to advance? Are they just going to sit back and play for draws, knowing that if they can get five points, they're most likely through? Or do you think they're going to try to nick another win, knowing that if they can get one win, they're probably through? What, what would you do if you were in charge of that team? I, I would take the win if it's there. I basically, if you get a chance, you got to take it. But I wouldn't necessarily go all out trying for it. Because if Colombia wins, which I would expect, then Colombia and Senegal have to play, and really, you'd only need a point against Poland to get through. So I expect Japan to probably play for the draw, because I think if they really go for the win, then Senegal attacks them on the counter, and that, that sinks them. 
Yeah, fair. I'm definitely curious to see what they do because I'm, I'm really not sure personally what, what I would do if I were in charge. But that's it for recasts and previews. But we do have a few miscellaneous things to talk about. We already touched on Commonwealth struggles, but a lot of own goals this tournament. We've got five so far, and the record for an entire World Cup is six. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is just a result of teams that aren't very good going in or just lackluster defending, but it's happened. Did you see any of them that you think maybe should have gone to the, the attacker? I mean, the only one that you could maybe make the argument for, and I'm really only saying that because I haven't seen it that many times, is Pogba's goal or I guess the own goal by the Australian defender in the France-Australia game. Again, I I just haven't seen that enough times to be 100% positive, but every other one, I would say, correctly judged an own goal. Initially, you know, I thought, and I know some other people thought, that the record was tied with Diego Costa's goal for Spain, since, you know, it bounced off, the defender kicked it and ended up bouncing off Costa, but that one was was tough to determine initially as well. I'm a little surprised with the Australia one, because they credited it to Pogba initially, and it's a little harsh for him. For Pogba to see that taken away, because, I mean, that's a nice little personal tally. But I see why they did it, and I, I don't think any of the others, like you said, there's, there's no real argument to flip any of them. So may, maybe you're sitting here on four, although I do think the Egypt one should have been waved off for a foul. So maybe you're sitting on three. But I think that record's going to get broken. Yeah, I mean, there have been five so far, so I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised. Another point to note, there have been 10 1-0 games so far, which is a seemingly high number. I would say there have been no nil-nil games so far. So even though 1-0 isn't the most exciting result, and definitely a lot of the 1-0 games haven't been exciting, the fact that we're getting goals at all relative to nil-nil games makes it at least a little bit better. This is true. I think, especially in the U.S. where... You don't have ties in any other sport, although technically they can happen in football, but they're still in overtime first. Seeing a game go to a tie, especially after no one has scored, for someone who's like turning on soccer for the first time, they kind of look around and say, well, why aren't they still playing? I think that is compounded when it is a nil-nil tie. Um, So as bored as these people are, there's still still a little drama with regards to a late one-nil winner or a team just making sure that the other team doesn't get a last-second equalizer in a 1-0 game. So, like, they have their merits. It is not that fun. But, yeah, and it's really a result of teams just trying to sit back and maybe just the imbalance of talent in these teams. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up seeing that result a lot more as we get into the later later stages of the tournament when, you know, you just need to hold on and, and get that one goal to advance to the next round. But, I mean... There have been exciting 1-0 games, too. Peru's 1-0 win, or Denmark's 1-0 win over Peru was was one that I particularly enjoyed watching, despite the low score. So, you know, not all of them are boring, and I think, you know, Russia's 5-0 win was boring. So I'm just hoping for, you know, teams to be open and have exciting play, whether or not they score. We just haven't had that yet, so with the exception of the Peru-Denmark game. So hopefully that happens. Yeah. But uh, that wraps up this episode. We will see you in a few days. But in the meantime, enjoy some more World Cup 
and we'll be excited to watch and talk about it when those games happen. See ya. See ya.